Today's episode of The Metrospective is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome to episode number 69 of The Metrospective. Pete McCarthy with Tim Britton. And 69, that's a meaningful number in Mets history. Of course, 1969, the year of their, the Miracle Mets, their first championship. So we've named the show for uh, for that entire team. How are you doing, Tim? Hanging in there, Pete. As good as it can be considering. And I feel yep. like that's the word that I've, I've added to every conversation now. It's just, you know, considering. How about you? That is... Probably the best way to go about it. Uh, yeah, things are, are good. The the now one year old has completely upended the apartment, so it is. <laughs> it's that time we're, we're we're taping on Monday evening. So once the evening hits, it's a total wreck, and then by the morning it'll be clean again. And this is just the the process over and over and uh, and over again. Uh, but I, I opened, you know, talking about the the 69 team. We just last year had the 50th anniversary and all the celebration at City Field. And obviously neither of us lived through it, but both growing up Mets fans, we have been inundated with stories and the tale of the Miracle Mets uh, time and again. But going through it again last year, and I'm sure getting the opportunity to interview a, a lot of the players that were involved, what are some things that maybe you learned about that team, that group, their path, and uh, just how unlikely a championship that was? I, I, you know, you really get a sense, and I, you know, going through it last year, I, I went day by day on a, a Twitter account, 1969 NY Mets. Uh, you get a, a sense of having read, you know, a lot of stories from that year, game stories and things like that. The complete out of the blueness of it, not just, you know, the World Series and, and beating a 109-win team in the Baltimore Orioles, but like late May when they go on an 11-game winning streak to get kind of involved in the conversation, but not really. Like they weren't, you know, breathing down the Cubs' necks at that point. Uh, that that was just kind of like, oh, like this was, <laughs> this was unexpected that they would even be around 500 at that stretch of the season. Uh, and then you get a sense for the excitement into July when they catch Chicago originally. And then, you know, they fall right back down. You kind of think of that Tom Seaver imperfect game uh, against the Cubs. I believe it was July 9th of that season as kind of like, okay, here is when the, the pennant race really starts. But then by the middle of August, they were 10 games back again. You know, that team went 38-11 and 11 to finish the regular season. Uh, then you go seven and one in the playoffs. That's forty-five and twelve in your last fifty-seven games. So that I mean, that's how. And, and clearly, the Cubs collapsed too. But you went from a team that was ten out in mid-August to a team that comfortably won the division, uh, which is remarkable. You know, it was thirty-five, thirty-eight and eleven, or twenty-four and seven, or nine and one to finish the season. You know, it was just this incredible finishing kick uh, that carried the way into an NLCS where they beat the Braves despite getting terrible pitching from Seaver, Kuzman, and Gentry, uh, and then to pull off the upset of really a behemoth Orioles team, probably the best Orioles team of that, you know, 
15-year run of really good Baltimore Orioles teams. Uh, that was the one that had the best regular season record, maybe had the best team overall. I talked to Boog Powell about it last year. He thought that was the best Orioles team, uh, and yet the Mets just kind of steamrolled them after game one of that series. Yeah, if my memory serves me correct, Davey Johnson in his book uh, called the, the 69 Mets horseshit. <laughs> you know, they, they should have never lost that series, that the Orioles were that good, and they had been there before, they were there after, and, you know, that is one that seems to stick in the craw of those guys, thinking that we were the far better team, and yet uh, the, uh, the, the Mets upset them as well as everybody else. It's amazing that run you talk about because the Mets were – uh, yeah, they'd never been 500 before, and then all of a sudden that kind of run to finish off a season into a, a World Series. Yeah, like it, it's not, you know, as as Book Powell pointed out last year, like that team won 100 games. It's not like we were playing some rinky-dink, you know, in, in NCAA tournament te- terms. It's not like you're playing an 8 seed or an 11 seed in the, the championship game and you get upset. It's just, you know, the Orioles were, were that good a team, and the Mets had, had become that good a team over the course of the season, especially the, the last six weeks of the regular season. And one of the interesting things looking at both the, the the World Series and the NLCS, you get a sense for like the lack of scouting that was going on then. You know, the, the Braves had no idea what who Nolan Ryan was. And when he mm-hmm. came in, I think it was it was game two or game three of that NLCS, uh, and he just cruised for like six plus innings. Uh, and he just shut them down because they did they hadn't seen him in the regular season. You know, they'd played 12 games against the Mets. They hadn't seen Nolan Ryan. They had no idea who he was or or what he was as a pitcher. Uh, and then the Orioles, it was the same thing with Gary Gentry. They knew Seaver to an extent because of his reputation. They knew Kuzman because of the run he had had earlier in the season. Uh, but they had no idea what Gentry was about. Uh, and that was the game, game three of that series, where Gentry beats Jim Palmer. Uh, that that's when when Boog said he kind of got a sense things might be turning in the wrong direction here. We didn't expect we didn't expect to lose that game, uh, and that that is really you know that and of course the ninth inning of of Game Four uh, with the Swoboda play and all that that those are the real pivot points of that It'd series. It'd be nice if the 2015 Royals had the same scouting. You know, I want to turned out a little better for our Mets uh, many many years <laughs> later. Um, yeah, a couple of the fun things that you are doing uh, as we go through this global pandemic without baseball and for baseball fans and Mets diehards. I mean, all we could really do is wait and revisit the past uh, to a large degree. And you posed an interesting question as part of your red seats pub uh, series, which is every Monday you throw out a a question. Everybody can debate it, talk about it uh, in the comments. Uh, But you asked the question, who is the best defender in Mets history? And, I think Keith Hernandez is a name that comes up right away. Uh, He didn't spend his entire career with the Mets, if you're looking at that as a benchmark. He also played first base. But, uh, you know, if you look at just the numbers, uh, Fangraphs has defensive war for a career, and it goes Bud Harrelson, Jerry Grody, Ray Ordonez, Juan Lagares, John Stearns. So by the numbers... Those are the top five. No Keith Hernandez in the top ten uh, somehow when you just look at that particular number, which I guess you could argue uh, that a couple of ways. How useful is that number or you know, how important is it to have a, a great defensive first baseman relative to other positions? But I, I'm kind of curious, who did you come up with, the best defender in the history of the New York Mets? Yeah, I mean, the the guys I was looking at were Hernandez, obviously, and then Ray Ordonez at shortstop because of, of 
what he was able to do in the late 90s as a guy who had no offensive capabilities, really. Uh, but, man, the, the shortstop position in a way that, you know, for me growing up, I had not seen before. Uh, and then you talk about some center fielders in, in Carlos Beltran and Juan Lagares uh, and another premium position. To me, it came down to really Ordonez and Hernandez. And it's, you know, the, the, I think the interesting thing about posing the question about the defensive side of the ball is, like, the, you know, first of all, we don't have real good defensive stats that go back that far. You know, you mentioned the, the defensive war, which clearly uh, benefits you if you've played a premium position. The, the guys you mentioned are all catchers, shortstops, uh, center fielders, uh, and, and penalizes you for being a, a first baseman like Hernandez. You know, even defensive runs saved, we've only got going back to 2002. So you, that doesn't even capture Ordonez's career, let alone Hernandez's. So a lot of this is, is the eye test and thinking about, you know, what a guy did to help the rest of the infield or what he did for his pitchers. And that's where it's really hard for me to delineate between, you know, okay, Keith Hernandez was probably the best first baseman ever defensively. Uh, like, I don't even know who to compare him to that I've seen in person in like 25 or 30 years of watching baseball. Like, I don't oh, John know Olerud who the guy would be who's... the best defensive first baseman of our generation that we had an opportunity to see with the Mets. Right. But I think even he doesn't compare to kind of what Hernandez brought in terms of an aggressive style at first base. Like the, the concept of a game changing okay. first baseman defensively is not something I have not seen in person. Whereas Ordonez was was not, you know, no one talks about Ray Ordonez as the best defensive shortstop of all time. I don't even think people say, you know, he might not have even been the best at the time he was operating. I think you can argue, I, I would probably argue he was, but there are cases to be made for other guys. Uh, but that's such a, a more important defensive position uh, and such a richer history of guys playing it. Like, do you give Ordonez the edge because of that? Uh, and so, I, you know, I said I put Ordonez because he's the guy I've seen. So I can, I can relate to mm. the impact he made for his pitching staff and the rest of that infield. But a lot of the commenters who had seen Hernandez uh, went with him, and I, I cannot really argue against that. Well, I, and, and I would knock Ordonez down because I saw both Ordonez and Juan Lagares. I think Lagares is a defender at his peak who's better and more impactful than Ray Ordonez at shortstop. And I know Lagares didn't have the same highlight, real spectacular plays. You think about Ordonez going into the hole that slide and throw all in one motion play uh, that could be just spectacular. Whereas Lagares, it was just his ability to cover the gaps and to cover an insane amount of ground at a time when there was a lot of ground out there at City Field. And yeah, I, I think that too, a, a shortstop makes one of those web gems, right? Makes a great play. Hey, you're taking away a single. Juan Lagares is taking away doubles and triples, uh, thrower runners out at home plate. Uh, you know, I just thought Lagares, to my eyes, his peak was as good a defensive player as I've ever seen with the Mets. Now, again, you know, Keith Hernandez becomes kind of more difficult to look at. And, you know, guys like Jerry Grody and, and John Stearns is on. By the way, this is the baseball reference defensive war that I'm working off of. I said fan graphs earlier. Uh, but, you know, those were the top five. Catchers are kind of a, l a little trickier. There's a lot more that goes on there. But um, to my money, I would put Juan Lagares ahead of Ordonez. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable take. I'd probably go with Ordonez just because of the number of plays that you influence. Uh, and, and you make a good point that Lagares has taken away doubles or, or 
keeping a guy from scoring. Uh, but I think Ordonez, there's just more balls that he can he can make a play on than a center fielder does. Uh, and you know he played more. I think they played the same number of seasons, but Ordonez was a regular for a longer period of time than Lagares was. But you know the way Lagares could play shallow in center field, it seemed like he was right behind the second baseman at times to really make the most of his arm coming in on balls, and then could still make up the ground over his head. Uh, I think he, you know. For, for me, Beltron had been the best defensive center fielder that the Mets had ever had at that point. Uh, again, I hadn't seen Tommy Agee, uh, who I think you can make case had the best defensive game a Mets defender ever had uh, in that World Series in 69. Mm. Uh, but Beltron made everything look so easy and so smooth. Uh, and Lagares was kind of the same way, but... Uh, you know, you really got a sense for his range into the gaps and going back over his head uh, in a, a different kind of way than Beltron. And I'll just throw another number out there. Now, you mentioned we only have defensive runs saved from 2002 to 2019. So, you know, that throws Ray Ordonez out the window as far as the Mets are concerned. But we do have, what, 18 years to look at? Juan Lagares is number one, 79 defensive runs saved. Number two is Carlos Beltran at less than half that number of 34. And that's the entirety of Carlos Beltran's time with the New York Mets. So, I mean, again, just another number. It's just how far above and beyond Ligaris has been of any Met within the last two decades now. And I know we're comparing him to some other guys, but, I mean, it's not even close. I mean, you mentioned Carlos Beltran as being really – impactful defensive player out there in center field and I, I agree with you he's good but Lagares is more than twice as good in a very similar time frame and a lot fewer games in the case of Lagares because uh he was banged up and, and wasn't never quite became that everyday guy all the time yeah and I, I think he actually ranked out as a negative defender last season so it might have been even higher going into last season uh for Lagares because that I mean that's how good he was in what was it 2014 when he won the gold glove uh when he was really mm -hmm. looked like his peak I think his peak is better than anybody I mean I, I think you can make the case that that was the best defensive season uh that a Mets player has ever had I think it's it's certainly right at the top of that list as far as the current Mets are concerned, we've kind of teased this the last couple of episodes. We've had uh, some guests that were a, a lot of fun from Bobby Valentine and going back to the 99-2000 Mets to David Kaplan and uh, this, the athletic business report, sports business reporter, and discussing the Mets still trying to sell this franchise. You can go back and listen to those last couple of podcasts. But uh, we've talked about the idea of what the Mets rotation can do now without Noah Syndergaard, of course, Tommy John surgery, and that is, of course, if they can uh, fire up this 2020 season at some point, which we'll get into as well. But I, I like the idea of getting Seth Lugo ramped up for the rotation. I, I've said it on the show before. I believe your top five pitchers should be in the rotation, and everybody in the bullpen you know, that's a bonus. If you have a choice between having a reliever who's throwing, let's say, 90 innings or a starter who can potentially throw 160, 170, I'll take those big innings all the time. And those are important innings at the start of a game as well. So, you know, even if you're worried about the Mets bullpen, which I am, I don't mind taking from that to improve the rotation. They could still you know, have Michael Waka or Rick Porcello, um, you know, probably Waka in the in the bullpen, but to me, I'd really look into that. What are you hearing about whether or not the Mets are open to something along those lines? 
Yeah, I, t- I talked to a couple people with the Mets over the weekend just to get a sense for for what they felt about the rotation at this point in time. And I mentioned, you know, Lugo and Gazelman in particular because those were guys who, you know, going into the offseason, the Mets had talked about looking at them as starting pitchers and having them train to be starting pitchers when they got to spring training. The signings of, of Porcello and Waka in at the winter meetings mid-December kind of changed that track a little bit. But, you know, the Mets said that they were still looking at those guys as at least multi-inning pitchers uh, during spring training. We didn't get a chance to see a lot of that in spring training games at that point. You know, Lugo, I think, only pitched in the one spring training game. Uh, And Gazelman, honestly, by this point, I forget what he did in spring training. Uh, But, you know, looking at those as guys who could maybe go two or three innings, uh, and now they can kind of, with the the stoppage here, they, they still look at them as potential starting pitchers. So... I, you know that's still vague it's it's kind of an open-ended answer to it it's not saying we're gonna we're gonna move Seth Lugo into the rotation now because we're gonna need a sixth guy or or you know we like him more in our rotation than we like Michael Waka uh it's too early for them to say anything like that but they haven't necessarily ruled out the idea of of Seth Lugo being in the rotation which you know I think for reasons you you talk about it makes sense kind of in this scenario because I, I I really think if we do have a a condensed season uh schedule here where you're playing double headers you're gonna need six starting pitchers i think on a a, you know maybe not a a full six-man rotation the entire time but you're gonna need it i think more weeks than not to have that that spot starter to spot a to to start a double header game uh so i think you know as long as you're not putting his long-term health in peril bouncing back and forth this way and as long as he's comfortable doing it which I would imagine he would be because he's wanted to be a starter for the last few seasons uh then I think it makes sense to look at Seth Lugo as that number five number six guy that that swing that that does a little bit of both maybe and you bring up an important point that this is an unprecedented situation if baseball is to gear things back up and have a 2020 season and how the schedule is put together in all of these different factors. And with the schedule, um, you know, as you mentioned, condensed schedule, double headers, perhaps. Yes, uh, that would be part of it. And the other thing that I'm thinking of now is it'll probably depend on what these guys have been able to do while they are at home. Uh, you know, we talked to Jerry Blevins uh, a couple of episodes ago, and you know, he said he found a, a wall that he's able to throw against at uh, the, the place that he's staying at in Arizona. And he's, of course, uh, a spring training invite of the San Francisco Giants. But I, I would think for some players, they're in the ability to continue pitching or have a place to throw. And maybe some aren't in that kind of spot, right? In the NBA, for instance, Giannis Adetokounmpo, he doesn't have access to a basketball hoop right now. So, yeah, he's saying he's on his workout bike, he's hitting the treadmill, lifting weights, but he can't shoot. He, he can't do any of those other things. His teammate Chris Middleton is saying he's using his neighbor's basketball net uh, to try to stay loose. So I, I would think that would be the case for baseball players as well, and it would probably be most impactful, as we've talked about, for the pitchers that have to probably relatively quickly ramp up and to be able to go five, six innings uh, once that regular season might get underway. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned Blevins is throwing against a wall. We saw a video of Garrett Cole throwing with his, his wife. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, you need that as a pitcher. You need that catching partner. Uh, we also saw the video of, of Marcus Stroman throwing, I guess, on a pier uh, That's right. was his his uh, his mound setup, which, which looked pretty nice, actually. Uh, you know, 
so it, it's difficult for these guys to have the kind of you know so I think it's even harder than basketball basketball is such a sport that you can practice on your own pretty pretty well as long as you have a hoop unlike the reigning NBA MVP like how does that happen I yelled at my parents for tearing down the hoop in my childhood driveway on the off chance that I would come home and want to shoot uh, and now you have the reigning NBA MVP doesn't have uh, a hoop within like close distance that that's wild to me um, but it's you know it's tougher for pitchers you need that you necessarily need that other person unless you're just throwing against a wall like Blevins uh, to do kind of high level stuff. Uh, so I think that's the biggest question uh, for not just the Mets, but for any team is, is what kind of state will your pitching be in uh, if we do play this season? Like what can you expect out of anyone uh, on your pitching staff? How many guys are you going to need? Uh, what's the injury rate going to be like because guys are stopping and starting uh, and how crisp can these guys be? Uh, probably with a more condensed spring training schedule than you would have otherwise because of, of all of this disruption. Uh, you know, I, I think we can see run scoring maybe go up again, regardless of the context of the baseball, because just pitchers won't be in the, in the form we expect them or are used to seeing them in. Yeah, I, I think it'll be great if we really get to entertain a lot of these questions and consider uh, this pandemic from a baseball perspective and how it might impact the 2020 season. But of course, we're not quite there yet. I mean, we can talk about it here, but it's still undetermined as to whether or not we can even have a, a season. Uh, you know, South Korea has handled this virus better than others, uh, according to the stats that are out there. Uh, and they were able to start having some interest squad games as recently as this week. So, you know, they're starting to get things going. You have baseball players wearing masks in, in that case, as has become the norm uh, just walking around Queens uh, here in, in New York now. Uh, but what's your sense as we move on with this thing? Because I know nobody can say anything for sure, but as you, you look at what's happening in other sports around the globe and – where baseball might fit into that and, and when this timeline might be able to begin where we, okay, it's time for the pitchers to ramp up and to get this thing going. Yeah. I mean, the, the really difficult questions to think about are, are first of all, that, you know, the, the virus is affecting different parts of the, the country on a different timeline. Mm -hmm. So whereas, you know, me and you in, in New York and in Queens here have been going through, you know, it, it's as bad here as it is anywhere else in the country, probably worse than it's been anywhere else in the country right now. There's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel a little sooner than maybe in some other places where the virus hasn't hit as badly yet, but is kind of expected to over the next couple weeks, maybe the next month or two. Uh, so that's the hard part. You know, what if you say, OK, New York is in a, a decent spot by M Memorial Day, but Florida is not doing so so hot. Where do you have a spring training for your team? that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think the, the size of the country uh, hurts in that regard. And then you've got to answer the question, you know, what happens if one of your players tests positive for this? You know, that was the impetus for everything shutting down originally with Rudy Gobert and the Utah Jazz uh, in the NBA. You know, we've seen in Japan where they, they wanted to start back up uh, and have their spring training and three players from, I think it's the Hanshin Tigers, tested yes. positive. Uh, and they kind of, that team had to kind of shut down 
uh, and that that changes the plans for the league as a whole. You know, what happens if you're playing in in August or September? You know, this thing doesn't go isn't going away entirely at that point. There are going to be people still getting it. It's just not you hope not to the extent where it is now in different parts of the country. Uh, you know, what happens if someone on your team comes down with it? Because we talked about it last time, like the way uh, anything moves through a clubhouse. Like I, I was covering the Red Sox the year they had the flu move through the clubhouse at the start of the season. And th- those were all guys who had gotten flu shots. Uh, and this is April. It's later than, than usual in the flu season. And they had to put multiple guys on the, the disabled list because of the flu. They had too many guys who were too sick to play to field a full team without doing that. Uh, that's how quickly it can move through a, a Petri dish like a clubhouse. So if you have something like this that's worse than the flu, more contagious than the flu, you know, if, if a team, if one guy comes down with it, What's the rest of that team do? You can't just quarantine for two weeks and, and forfeit two weeks of games. Maybe that is what you do. Uh, but, you know, we've seen guys... You've seen, like, Scott Boris has floated the idea of, like, a fully quarantined season taking place in one spot uh, where everyone, you know, players don't really get to interact with the outside world for when the season goes on. I think they've talked about that with the NBA also. Uh, so it's, it's just really hard to imagine. You know, I, I think this is probably the point in time where I am the least optimistic about us getting uh, any kind of season in 2020 Uh, because of concerns like that. I don't know what the answers are to that. You know, and the quarantine idea, while it sounds good on paper to me with baseball, there's no way you could demand that every player on every team stay away from their family, for instance, and quarantine for a baseball season. Like to me, I think it makes some sense for the NBA and you wouldn't have the Pacers, let's say. You would just get a list of players that are willing to do this. Uh, You draft them on some made-up teams and you go. I mean, I I think that's something you could do in the NBA where you only need 10 players on a given team. But, you know, with baseball, it would just be so different. There's never, you know, you can have a tournament around Robin and then a tournament in basketball and it would be, you know, like the playoffs. I don't see how you could do that in baseball. And again, it, it couldn't be 30 teams going at one another with that kind of demand on on every player in the game. I, I just I don't see it as being feasible for what baseball is. Yeah, I mean, the NBA idea is doing like a playoffs in Vegas kind of thing. And you're talking about 16 teams probably of 12 players each. That's uh, 192 players. Whereas baseball, if you've got 30 teams of 26 players each, that's, you know, four times that number. That's 780, uh, according to my calculator here. Uh, So it's just such a harder time. I mean, that's not even the fact that teams routinely go through 45, 50, 55 players in a given season uh, and would probably need to do something like that uh, if the schedule were more condensed. So I, I think, yeah, that idea is it's a thought experiment more so than a, a realistic plan at this point. And first, we got to get through this whole thing as a city, as a country. Uh, the Mets, uh, they did create a COVID-19 disaster assistance fund for seasonal employees, uh, people that will not have work now. There's opening months of the season at the very least uh, without having games at City Field. And even if the team is able to play uh, you know, baseball as we know it, buying Cracker Jacks at the ballpark might not be a part of it, but a, a $1.2 million program put together by the Mets. And I know Stephen Matz uh, doing some some charitable acts at Elmhurst Hospital with Elmhurst Hospital and some other hard-hit spots. So uh, 
Uh, the Mets, you know, plenty of them, um, you know, doing their part, everybody trying to help out however they can, Tim. Yeah, nice gestures from by, by Mats and by the Mets. You know, the, you, you feel for those seasonal employees because so many of them, you know, they, their other work is also at, at stadiums, you know, at NBA arenas, at NFL stadiums uh, throughout the year. So it's it's not just the summer that they've lost their employment. It's the entire year because of what's going on. Uh, so it's a, a nice gesture by the Mets to try to take care of them uh, in so much as they can at this point. Next episode will be our 70th, Tim, and uh, number 70 in the history of the New York Mets. It has been worn twice. Wilfredo Tovar and Eric Hanholt. Uh, where would you like to go for episode number 70? You know, I, th- I think I'm looking at a couple different guys off of the 1970 Mets. Uh, it's a little nicer to be able to use that as a, as a gauge. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll give you three options. You get to make the ultimate choice here. I'm going to cede that authority to you because we've got Don Clendenin because that was his, his, you know, he had kind of a full season with the Mets that year after his World Series MVP performance in 69, had an 863 OPS. You've got Tommy Agee. We talked about defense, what what he did in center field. He won the gold glove in 1970 in addition to hitting 24 home runs. Or you've got the best season in the Mets career of a guy named Nolan Ryan. Uh, 342 ERA, 125 strikeouts in 131 innings, 97 walks. But still, uh, <laughs> his best season uh, as a New York Met before he was eventually traded. So I think those three guys for the 1970 Mets, your, your choice on where we ultimately go with this. Well, let's give the nod to Don Clendenin. I mean, such a key part of that 69 team that we were talking about earlier uh, with the Mets making the deal to bring him in. And yeah, big time season, 97 RBIs. And 1970 at 34 years old. So, uh, all right, Don Clendenin it is. It's a good choice. That's where I was leaning. All right. Well, well good. We're in agreement then. No argument needed. Uh, so the Don Clendenin episode uh, coming up, it'll be out on Friday morning, both uh, on the Athletics app and website and wherever podcasts, uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and put it that way. Uh, Adam Gracia, our producer for Tim Britton. I'm Pete McCarthy. See you later, Tim. Adios. Adios.